Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Border, budget, border, budget. If Congress sounds like a broken record, well, it is. With two weeks to go before the government funding lapses for many agencies, well, it turns out Congress over the weekend looks like it may be made a little progress. We get the latest now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, what happened and what does it look like now? Never a dull moment, even on the weekends. Well, what had been eluding congressional leaders for weeks here is a top-line spending deal that would allow appropriators to write the 12 spending bills. That was announced yesterday by Speaker Mike Johnson, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and lauded by the president, who had been waiting for this as well. Um, This has all been about what did last summer's debt limit deal mean for this year's spending bills? And they basically have gone back to what the top line numbers written into law were, but then reached uh, another agreement on what had been called a side deal that had been reached between then Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden about money that would be cut from elsewhere and used to offset spending. So we finally have that framework in place that will allow appropriators to do their work ahead of these key spending deadlines that are coming up. So this top line deal, then, does that break down according to agency by agency? Are they that far yet? No, that's what remains to be done. And there's a lot of work there. Um, as you know, they set two spending deadlines, January 19th and February 2nd. Uh, February, uh, the first one coming up, January 19th, applies to four of the regular spending bills. So those are the bills that are going to be top of mind now as the appropriators figure out how much to spend on each of those four bills and then go department by department, agency by agency. And key to that still is going to be figuring out what policy writers make it in, uh, because that could determine whether or not those bills can make it through both chambers. Right. So the top line number, though, must have some rough idea behind there of agency by agency, because the $1.6 trillion, whatever it is, is based roughly on what the agency submitted or what the administration put in for its 2024 request. That's right. And we saw Senate spending bills that were written closer to that number, although they had some emergency spending and other funding as well. Um, so there there could be a roadmap closer to that if you're looking for $1.59 trillion. Um, part of this was also to agree on a defense and a non-defense number. Um, obviously, the defense number is pretty concordant to what's in the defense spending bill, although there's some programs and other spending measures as well. Um, but, you know, the, the detailed level, that's going to take some time to work through uh, because lawmakers have different priorities than the administration. And certainly conservatives in the House are going to want to put some mark on these bills and cut spending in some places and maybe reprioritize it elsewhere. So does this deal then or this tentative deal take away the prospect of a long term continuing resolution? I mean, what what does it mean in terms of what they're likely to do next in terms of full term, full year appropriations? Appropriators say they're going to buckle down, work day and night to try and get some spending bills done, the first four by January 19th, the others by February 2nd. House Republicans have been reluctant to pass another short-term CR, so I think they'll be pushing to make that January 19th deadline. And then also we'll we'll see what else might take a ride with these packages as they come together, where it's, whether it's that border security deal that they're trying to negotiate, the Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and other supplemental funding, or something like a tax deal, which um, the House Ways and Means and Senate Finance Committees are trying to put together. But safe to say that the Ukraine and Israel aid, that was more bound to the disagreement over the border 
then the budget was bound to disagreement over the border. That is to say, the budget could happen. The supplementals are still hung up with politics and, and disagreement over the border. That could be. And some House Republicans, after visiting the border last week, want to tie regular funding to the border border security legislation. But we'll see if that dynamic plays out or if this top line deal smooths the path for things to move, even if that's not ready to go. So we could see kind of a two phase process, one for the next couple of weeks and then one for the later February deadline. So a lot more to follow yet. As the boys and girls on the Hill learn to get along. Yes, there's a long path ahead of us here before February 2nd, to be sure that. And there are also hearings coming this week, like the Mayorkas impeachment, possibly the President Biden impeachment. And so the Democrats came up with, well, here's the foreign money that went to former President Trump. And a lot of that stuff seems to be building rather than subsiding. Right. Well, when you don't have legislation, you can use hearings to sort of drive the agenda. And we're going to see some of that. Um, big ones that you mentioned. That's right. Um DHS Secretary Mayorkas, there is discussion about impeaching him, and there's a hearing focused on him and his role at the border on Wednesday. Um, We also are preparing for a potential contempt vote around Hunter Biden, the president's son, who had been asked to appear behind closed doors to a committee refused to do so and memorably went to the Capitol steps and said, I'll do it in public, but I won't do it in private. Um, That is going to come up for a potential potential committee vote, at least um, with the House Oversight Committee trying to hold him in contempt. And we could see that go to the floor as well at some point. Um, And then, as you mentioned, the presidential impeachment um, of which the Hunter Biden discussions are a part, uh, we'll see how quickly they move back to that. Um, And another one, another behind closed doors thing, so it won't be public. Anthony Fauci is being brought to the Hill for a couple of days next week to answer questions about his role in COVID-19 policy going back to the onset of the pandemic and perhaps even the origins before that. So um, a lot happening both in front of and behind the scenes on these investigations that will churn for pretty much the rest of the year, probably. Wow. And there's a few other matters like FAA reauthorization. That's been bouncing along for quite a while, hasn't it? That's right. And there, you know, we've talked a lot about the second. There are two other big deadlines that lawmakers are trying to meet. March 8th is when the FAA authorization lapses. Um, Their funding has to be decided as part of the regular appropriations debate. But this is the ability to collect ticket taxes and fund a lot of the operations that go on there. So there's been a bill passed in the House. The Senate bill has been stuck in committee over some pilot training matters and other provisions. They're going to try to chip away at that and see if they can make progress there. And then April 19th is the expiration of um, some important electronic surveillance programs under the FISA law. So uh, there wasn't enough progress by the end of the year to wrap that up. So they have a few months to try to work across the chambers and across the parties on that. It's one of these issues that doesn't necessarily fall on party lines either, which could make it a kind of an interesting path to navigate for that bill. And you mentioned pilot training under the FAA authorization. That's actually a pretty contentious issue, isn't it? And that does divide on party lines, and that's part of what's been holding it up, right? It has been holding it up. Um, There's been some effort to make some changes in the Senate bill. The House started down that path and decided to maintain the current pilot cap, uh, pilot, I'm sorry, training hour requirement. So we'll see what the Senate can resolve there. Um, You know, it it seems to me like overall the FAA bill, there is bipartisanship. The House bill was a very lopsided vote in favor. So if they could work out their disagreements on these things, you see a path forward for that one, um, perhaps more clearly than others. But obviously there's been obstacles holding that up for months now. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you.
And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, 
uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.